It was the seventh largest corporation in the United States, valued at $70 billion. They had one of the largest office buildings in downtown Houston. Its corporate leaders had PhDs in economics from all the prestigious Ivy League schools. Its executive leaders were close personal friends with two presidents. Wall Street banks and investors touted the company and invested billions into it. It was represented by one of the oldest accounting firms in the United States. Almost no one questioned the culture and environment of the company. It was hailed by Forbes magazine six years in a row as one of the most innovative companies in the world. Then, in early 2000s, in just six weeks, one of the leading, if not the largest energy companies in the world went bankrupt. 20,000 employees let go like this. An office building, empty. Stock prices from $100 a stock to $0.40. Cents. The company, Enron. I mean, it was a company that people said it could not fail. Behind the glamour, behind the glitz, behind all the money was fraud and a house of cards. That almost no one thought could fall, not even Arthur Anderson, the oldest accounting firm in the United States. The results, Arthur Anderson went belly up itself. Many of the high-level executives were convicted and sent to jail. And like I said, 20,000 employees and hundreds of thousands of people that had pensions gone. I think what must be the most surprising thing about this is how shocking it was for people. People said things like, it was too big to fail. There's no way that Enron could go down. This is an institution that will always last. Well, today, we're going to see a picture of something exponentially bigger than Enron. That people will say, it's too big to fail. And hopefully this picture should make us think, are we like the Enron investors or employees that don't even question that what we are living in is too big to fail? Do we just go along with the flow? Go along with the culture, the world, the nation? whatever it might be, saying, this is just the way it is. It's too big to fail. Well, let's see an empire fall, shall we? Look with me. I'm going to read the beginning of this passage, and then I will read some of the passage later on as we go on. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll look at the other parts of the passage later on. Please pay attention as we look at God's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. 
and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we have been going through the book of Revelation. And uh, I, when I say that we're going through the book of Revelation to people that have been visiting the church or um, people outside the church say, oh, you are. And I try to get what they're getting at when they say that, like, head nod like that. It's kind of like, oh, you're that, that kind of church. I get it. And I understand what they're saying. That kind of church that goes through Revelation every year or always talks about it or something like that. No, that's not us. Just so you know, we don't go through a Revelation every year. This is the first time we've gone through Revelation. Uh, we are the kind of church that says this. We believe that all the Bible is inspired, that all the Bible has something to teach us. Even what many would look at as the book of Revelation, which is very confusing and hard to look at at times, but it actually has something good for us and to teach us. It seems like I left at the right time, did I not, right? You know, David had to go through the seals and the trumpets and the bulls and the dragons and the beasts. Way to go, David. Thank you for doing the hard parts, right? But I'm back, right? So I can't escape it either. I can't escape these dragons and beasts and prostitutes and all these vivid symbolism that's there. Again, I want to remind us we are in apocalyptic literature that is purposely giving us vivid symbols to get our attention, to show God's victory through history and at the end of the age. You have to remember John and this ragtag group of churches in the Roman Empire, this early set on of the church, they are surrounded by a powerful enemy, a powerful empire, the Roman Empire. And this tiny band of churches throughout the Roman Empire have been persecuted, ostracized, have been looked down upon, some have been sent to jail, some have been Killed. It has been a tough go. But here God is showing John throughout the book of Revelation, whether it's through an angel messenger, God himself, that he has victory over the world. And whether it's the seals or the trumpets or the bowls, these cycles of seven, he is showing repeatedly through these cycles of seven what he is going to do at the end. And now he's going to repeat the cycle of seven again of the judgment against Babylon. It's really a zooming in of between the sixth and the seventh, whether it's a seal or the bowl or whether it's the trumpets. He's sealing in, he's zooming in on these areas and showing this is what's happening at the end. 
And here we are going to see, I wasn't able, we're in chapter 17, 18. I'm just going to look at 18, but chapter 17 I'll refer to. We are seeing God's power over the empires of the world. If you've been reading Revelation and maybe you read Revelation 17, it's quite a picture. We have a picture that the angel has given John of a prostitute riding a scarlet dragon. And the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. And this prostitute is drunk on the blood of the martyrs and the saints of Christ. Now, if you think Revelation is supposed to calm John down, right, and the church, um, that picture would not calm me down, okay? That's weird, okay, and scary. I don't know what it looks like for a prostitute to be riding a scarlet dragon with seven heads and ten horns, but that does not sound like one that's good, okay, and drunk off the martyrs. And this is the picture that God gives, the angel gives to John. And I think what it represents is, uh, oh, the angel talks about in 17 what it represents. It represents the powers of the world. The seven heads represent the seven mountains and seven kings. And the ten horns, you know, re- represent um, the, the time that these kings reign. So there's been much ink spilled over time about chapter 17. I could probably preach a long time on it and postulate what my views on it are. And uh, many people have speculating about what it is. Um, The major thing is that these seven um, heads represent the seven empires through kind of uh, early Israel history. And then in the church, Babylon then Assyria, then the new Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and then the seventh one is the kingdoms collectively. Some would say the seventh one is just representing Rome because of the seven mountains, referring to the seven hills that are in Rome. You know, some speculate now that what empires they represent in church in, in church history or in the last 2,000 years, whether it's the empire of Germany or Russia or whatever it might be. I'm not going to speculate on that, but I'm just going to say what I think we can get from it is this, that the beast represents the entire anti-Christian persecution movement embodied in nations throughout time. And the harlot, the prostitute, represents the enticing nation of Babylon. And Babylon in Jewish history was this nation that took Israel out into exile, that its great power enticed the people of Israel to follow other gods. It had a very um, large presence throughout the nation of Israel and all of that area at the time, and it seduced the people of Israel. And so it is now being used as an allegory and an example of a seducer, a nation that has power and seduces people by its power. So now we get to chapter 18, the longest piece of poetry in all of the book of Revelation. And many would say it's almost a type of song. And we see seven songs within this 18th chapter. 
Again, seven is used over and over again as the idea of completion. Why I think when it says seven heads and seven mountains, it's the idea of kingdoms throughout history is probably what it's referring to. So let's look at verse one and two again. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Again, referring to this woman on top of the dragon. And what is a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird? For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual morality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. The idea here is that this is has a mighty power. That this harlot, this Babylon, this nation has a power to seduce people, has a power over all the things of the earth. And you see in chapter 17 that John says over and over again that he marvels at this figure, this symbol, the power of this thing. He is astonished at how great it is. But the angel says to John when he says he's marveling at this, the angel says, why do you marvel? Why are you astonished? The angel saying, this is what is going on. There is a battle that is happening. Let me show you what God is doing. And through chapter 17, what the angel shows John is that, the, the, um, that God, the lamb, has power over the dragon, power over the prostitute, that God has defeated these things. So do not marvel. Do not be astonished. Yes, there is a war going on. But again, the lamb has defeated these things. At Edron, they had a motto. The motto was this, ask why. Kind of ironic, isn't it? To have a motto that says, ask why, when they basically have been deceiving all the employees and all the people working there for all, so long. One of the employees being interviewed after the collapse of Enron said, it, yeah, it was kind of ironic, wasn't it? That they told us to ask why, but we never asked them why. Why is the balance sheet always okay? You know, why is it that our stock seems to double in price every year? Why is this happening? That really begs a question for us. Do we ever say, why? Why is it that I want more stuff? And there's that pool to get more. Why is it that I compare myself with others a lot? Why is it that I'm anxious at night about things? Why is it that I'm always trying to strive to reach my potential? Or is it just the way it is? It's just the way the world is that we compete with each other, that we worry about materialism, that we are anxious people. That's just the way it is. Or do we realize that there is a battle happening? 
you know, I'm a pastor, right? So I realize the battle's happening, right? Because I'm supposed to be spiritual all the time. I'm the professional Christian of the bunch, right? Is that what I am? So you sent the professional Christian to go to the cabin, right? So I went to the cabin and I'm able to, you know, spend time with the Lord, decompress, ask the why questions. You know, and that's the first week of the cabin, right? The first week is decompressing, admitting, oh, you know what? I do rest a lot of my identity in my job or how well the church is doing. And I'm, I'm just I'm taking it all into account the past year. Oh, this happened or that happened. And I'm giving it to the Lord saying, God, yeah, just take this. Take all this stuff, you know, that your kingdom is what matters, right? Takes me out a week to do that, right? Then second week, I live in spiritual bliss, right? Is that what I do? No, the second week, I realized this is what happens at the cabin, the second week. The second week, I start looking around at the cabin. And I go, man, I really need to paint this cabin again. You know, I really would be great if I cleared out all these rocks and put a new beach down here. You know what would be awesome? If we had a hot tub in the back of the cabin. You know what we need? We need a sauna at the cabin. That's what we need. You know what we need? We need a second floor on the cabin. You know what we need? We need a huge garage where I can house things in the garage. You know what we need? And it just keeps on going and going. It's amazing how after one week, I've replaced one thing with another. So quickly. And I said, oh, you know what? The church is not my kingdom. Guess what will be my kingdom now? This cabin. This will be my reprieve. When it's all said and done, I can always come back here. And this is where we'll be at. This is heaven on earth right here. I wonder this empire that we live in, it just becomes the air we breathe. We overextend ourselves. We live for what is now. We try to get as much experience as we can. Not admitting, not seeing, all of this will end. It will all fall. It will all be nothing. The angel says, why do you marvel? Why are you astonished? Don't you realize what is happening? There is a battle going on. There is a war happening for your soul. Verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her um, plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and uh, mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, 
In mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. You know, when you read Revelation, you wonder about these images. Why a harlot? Why a prostitute? Why this graphic symbol? Well, I think the graphic symbol is to wake us up. It's to make us see a a, a real life example that a prostitute or um, a harlot outside might look attractive. It seduces. It's alluring. But it can be incredibly destructive. It can take something that is so beautiful, like sex, a very intimate thing, and it can damage families and individuals. And here is taking something that people have experienced, whether through adultery or whatever it might be on that scale and how it's affected people. And then is taking it to the larger scale from what it does to the world in general, giving the image that these kingdoms, these places can be like prostitutes and harlots that entice us, that try to take us away from what our true love is. You know, this is just borrowing on Old Testament languages often used. The idea that Israel, when it goes to other gods, is acting as an adulterer. Often this is used over and over again, this imagery. The book of Proverbs gives that clearly in the first nine chapters. It shows either you follow Lady Folly, which is the prostitute, or you follow Lady Wisdom. Which one will you follow? Lady Folly will lead to destruction, but Lady Wisdom will lead to life. And this is the question that the church is asking at this time. We saw this in the first two chapters when we looked at the seven churches, and they're wrestling with this. They're asking, how can Rome be so bad? She looks so good. How can Rome fall when she looks so strong? Look at her beauty. How can she fall from the beauty that she has? And here the angel is trying to show John and show the church and show us. It will fail. And it will leave you empty. And if you tie your allegiance to her, you will be in trouble. Jeremiah 51 is so good. Flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you will save his life. Don't let it seduce you. Because its end will come. I know some people here in the church will argue that the greatest sporting event happened just last month. The Tour de France. I'm a huge, I'm a big Tour de France fan. I like to bike. And I was thinking about the tour and about a unique rider that owned the Tour de France championship for less than 24 hours. He rode with Lance Armstrong and he was to carry the mantle after Lance Armstrong. His name was Floyd Landis. And in 2006, he held the tour title, like I said, for less than 24 hours until being tested positive 
for performance-enhancing drugs. In the wake of being tested positive, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in years battling the charge about doping and being banned from cycling, which he was. He fought it for years. He fought it because fighting it worked for Lance, right? Who had won seven times. And he said, I'm not going to fail if I continue to fight this fight. Well, finally, he admitted. He admitted that he had doped. And at that point, he was too old to compete. But what is unique about Floyd Landis is this. Floyd Landis grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is known for, right, the Amish and some strict Mennonites. He grew up in a Mennonite family, a strict Mennonite family, Christians. And, uh, you know, his parents made him bike in sweatpants because they weren't allowed to wear shorts. But his parents through his biking expeditions, warmed him about the temptation of cycling. But through it, they continued to support him and love him. Even as he went through these hard times and the doping scandals and everything else. This is what I find intriguing. I saw an interview with Floyd Landis. It's a long interview. And in the interview, this is many years after all this happened. He goes through the litany of things that happened. The money lost. The loss of his credibility. A hip replacement from all the years of biking. The loss of his friendship with Lance Armstrong. But then the interview starts asking him about his parents and their faith. This is what he says. I love my parents. They're wonderful. But then he has this disgust on his face. But they're obsessed with religion. They're obsessed with religion. Do you see the irony? He is just interviewed for 45 minutes talking about his obsession to cycling. For 45 minutes, he's talked about losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, losing his credibility, losing his best friendship, losing all things. And he says, how dare they be obsessed with religion? The family that loved him and cared for him when he was nothing and everyone saw him as a piranha, they welcomed him in. I love Bob Dylan. You have to serve somebody. Another great one. These are the great ones. Johnny Cash. One day the man's going to come around. What will he find our obsession is? We're all obsessed with something. There is some kingdom that we're following. There is something that we are living for. And my hope is if we're living for Christ, the obsession becomes something like this. We give of ourselves. 
We love others. We hope when everything seems to collapse around us. I guess my question for you is the same question that is verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Have you let something seduce you? Have you let something say, this is my hope? It's too big to fail. And here the angel says, these people are saying the same thing. I sit as a queen. I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. And then the angel says, guess what? It will be taken from them in a day. Think about Floyd Landis when he was young. He said, all I want is to win the Tour de France. Well, he won it, didn't he? For a day. Gone. You know, sometimes I rejoice that the Lord shows me those things on this side of heaven. That the day won't come when he says, it's too late. Is he showing you those things at all? Don't let it be too late. And the kings of the earth, verse 9, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. The imagery is so powerful. Here, kings and merchants and leaders of industry, they will weep because all of it's gone. The wealth has dried up. 
And John's readers who look at Rome, they look at the energetic activity, they look at all the things that define Rome, and they're overflowing with these things. But he's saying, however, it was hollow. When the mask was torn away inwardly, there was nothing there. And the angel will take a millstone. And these millstones, these were hundreds of pounds that could only be moved by great beasts. Takes this millstone and throws it into the sea. And says that has how Babylon will be to the depths of the sea. And all the things of it, all this trumpets and weddings and all the great things, they will be heard no more. It will be nothing. One of these Enron traders went back into the building after everyone had cleared out a few weeks later to get something. And there was the desk where he'd made millions of dollars of trade and made millions of dollars himself by the trading. And he said it was a ghost town. Nothing was there. There were sheets of paper actually just blowing down the aisles. Gone. It might be sacrilegious for me to say this, right? Of the week of Mile of Music, where there's partying and dancing and having a great time. Hear me, please. I hope you hear this. I'm all for music. I'm all for dancing. I'm all for the mile of music. I'm all for having a good beer. It better be a good beer, okay? But as you walk the mile of music, as you see it, as you take it in, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, as 1 John 2 talks about what the world is, now, when he says world, this is the bad parts of the world. God made the world good, but it has fallen. And there are parts that we have taken what is good and we have ruined it. Do we realize when we see all this music, when we take in all this fanfare, one day it will end. It will be silent. It will be no more. Those things will be gone. And the singing and rejoicing and the feasting of the kingdom will replace it. Something that will last forever. A friend of one of the executives at Enron, an executive who made $30 million and then started selling off the stock knowing the company was a shell game. He told other people in the company, keep buying the stock. And he made $30 million while everyone else went broke. And then all of it hit the fan. And then realizing all this and all he had done, he wrote in his note before he committed suicide, he said, once was pride, 
now there is none. And this friend, this woman said this, Cliff needed to take a long look at himself and realize who he had become. You know, I could end this passage like that, couldn't I? Take a long look at yourself. Look at what you have become. But the gospel doesn't leave us there, does it? It doesn't leave us with that, oh Cliff, if you only have seen how deceptive you were. The gospel says this, you might live in Babylon, but you are invited to the new Jerusalem. You might have attached yourself to the beast, but instead you were rescued by the lamb. You might have tasted the seductress, but the groom says you are still a spotless bride to me. The gospel says, come to this new city. Come to this sacrifice. Come to this marriage. It will not fail you. It will give you life eternal. Is this your city? Is this your bride? Is this what you trust in? It's a great thing about communion. You stand up, you come forward, and you admit to everyone else. You say to everyone else, off with the seductress, off with this. And on with Christ. Let me be united with him. I want to be clothed with him. I want that headband around me not to say Babylon, but I want it to say I am united to the king. So if you believe that, if you trust in that, this isn't a Presbyterian table. This isn't an Emmaus Road table. This is for those that say, I trust in Christ. You might not be there. You might be going, man, this is some weird stuff. Revelation, crazy. He's bashing on Mile of Music. Who is this dude? I'm not bashing on Mile of Music. It's awesome. I'm just saying, what will last? But if you're there and you don't, you don't know, encourage you, stay seated. There's some prayers here to pray. I'd love to be able to talk to you. David would, any of these, these elders would love to talk to you. But if you trust in Christ, come forward. There's white grape juice on the outside, red wine in the middle. We have gluten-free wafers here too. This side will take over here. This side will take over here. You take the elements, return back to your seats, and then we'll all partake together. If you have kids we love, that aren't taking communion, we'd love to be able to pray for them. Shall we prepare our hearts? Let's do that. So call and response on page eight.